Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli, and I'm back with another episode here, and I wanted to do something a little different. I'm bringing on a good friend and one of our preferred mortgage bankers, mortgage brokers, and mortgage lenders, Aaron Chapman. You guys might recall Aaron was on about three years ago. It's, yes, it's been that long. And we talked about non-owner-occupied real estate investing and getting loans and the mortgage environment. It was a great episode. If you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to that episode because there's a lot of foundational information about mortgage lending there. But I wanted to bring him on because he has this very interesting concept that I think he refers to as the evolution of the real estate investor and I heard him explain this a couple of times, and I found it very interesting because it's kind of like representing a hierarchical structure or what you might find in an org chart with a company, you being the CEO of that company. And so I'm going to let him explain that. But just as a refresher, Aaron is a 20-year veteran in the finance industry, and he focuses pretty much specifically and only on real estate investors. He does investment loans and he has a great team, a total of 10 people or 10 staff members that help him do these loans. And he's a great guy. You know, we always get together whenever I'm in town or he's in town, but he's been married for 22 years, has four kids. I don't know how he keeps up with them, but you know, he's, he's a very active guy and a lot of fun. And you know, he does a lot of stuff outside the investment and loan industry. He helps out with his local sheriff department in the rescue unit. He's been doing this for nine years as a technical off-road and helicopter rappel rescue technician. How's that for a mouthful? Anyway, Aaron, welcome to the show. Hey, Marco. How you doing, brother? Hey, I'm doing great. It's good to have you back on. It's it's awesome to be back on. In fact, hearing you go through the breakdown of that three years has gone by. I can't believe that because it seems like we just did it. There's that much has happened. So many things have occurred and compressed in that short window of time that I actually talked about that now and again as Aaron's theory on time relativity. You know, when you're a kid, a day seemed like a long period of time because you didn't have a whole lot of experiences to go from. We get later in life and three years seems like six months because we have so much going on all the time that you're compressing it all into that window of perception. Yeah. And that's why everybody says time flies. You know, they just seem to fly through the days and the weeks and then the months so quick and your kids grow up so fast. In fact, I've noticed my daughter's approaching 11 years old and I'm still wondering, geez, what happened to five and six and seven? And so, yeah, time just it's a perceptual thing because time doesn't really change, but it keeps going faster and faster. So I want to ask you about something here. Really kind of the main topic of the show is this concept that you refer to as the evolution of the real estate investor. Maybe start off telling us how that all came to be because it's a really interesting twist on how you view yourself as a business owner and as an investor. Well, how it evolved, like I said, it really becomes, because it was an evolution. When you start out working with real estate investors, you start seeing that it's being reviewed as kind of like a consumer, you know, a person spending money and going into debt. And that was really, in a way, indicative of the investor when I first started finding this as a niche in the early 2000s, about 2002, 2003. And then as we started seeing the turnkey model to gaining some traction, started realizing individuals when they're buying investment real estate that they're evolved to a position of a business owner, not a person consuming a product. And what I mean by consuming a product is they're buying this piece of real estate 
then at that point, spending a certain amount of money and expect, and then they have this conception or this thought process that they're going into debt because they're taking on this loan. Now, the debt scenario definitely does make sense where they are in debt when you're talking about a person buying a home to live in, not necessarily buying a piece of real estate. So when they started to get a little bit more traction, at least some more, I'm able to help them envision themselves sitting at a board table. So and this is what I'm going to have all the listeners right now put themselves in this position. Put yourself sitting at the board table. You've got two rows of chairs, one on each side. Well, the fact that Marco, you and I are talking here, I would invite that individual who's listening here to fill the seat on their right with your presence. You are then now taking the role as their chief operations officer because you have within your organization people that are going to work with those investors to find the markets that make sense, who within those markets they would they would want to work with based upon what their goals are as their real estate investment firm, if you will. And then they're going to then take down the properties, rehab them, manage them, maintain them. When you consider that, all those chairs being filled, the entire right side of their board table is filled up with an operations division. And the really interesting thought process there that, that helps one to gravitate towards this is to think that you are they are getting an operations division for free. Because most of the times, if you're going to build a company, you're going to want to go in and you're, you're going to, one, start uh, getting all the, the necessary equipment to be able to do the job. Then you got to hire the people and you got to fire those who didn't do the right, who sold you a bill of goods on their uh, their resume. And you have to sort through trying to build the right team. It took me, you know, 15, 18 years to really get a solid team. Well, they have been able in this scenario to fill every one of those seats almost instantaneously because everybody in that seat has a long history of doing what they do and have worked their way through the problems to make it successful. And all that success can go right to the real estate investor. So in a way, they have purchased a business with an operations division for the market value of its sole asset. That is a very, very massive thing. It's not something we need to glaze over or ignore. Because when you think about that, most businesses, in fact, if you look at the S&P 500 right now, a business is as being valued at 31 times earnings, which is ridiculous. Yeah. That means, if, if, you know, so giving that consideration if they were trying to buy a property, if you were thinking of it, if it was being traded on the, if a piece of real estate is being traded on the S&P and it was making $1,000 a month in revenue, how much would they be paying for that? 31 times that to buy that property. So in reality, you're looking at, well, actually not 31, uh, 31 times the annual revenue. So it, that, that's way above what a person's really buying it for. Right. They're buying it for its market value. So when you're looking at an appraisal, you're going to three, see three different values on there, right? The market value the replacement value, and they're going to see the, the cash flow value. Well, we all have looked at these and nine times out of 10, the market value is the lowest of them. So the investor is buying this business just for the price of that property and they're getting it for 20 cents on the dollar because only putting 20% down on the average. So when they're, now that we've filled up the right side of their board table, when I am talking to them for the first time, I'm applying for CFO. I know that you know my business is to get the loans done, but in reality, that is a way to me to generate cash flow for our business so we can stay in existence. But what we do is we take our experience and put that to work to help that real estate investor to build their business from a financial perspective. Last year, we closed 676 units for real estate investors. 676 closings left my desk. I ask a lot of people if they've heard the term, good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. You ever heard that one? Yep. Well, what kind of experience does one have when it comes to judgment being used when they're doing 676 transactions a year. I get to see a lot of people's decisions making skills. I get to see a lot of judgment at work. 
I get to see people who listen to us and don't listen to us and what the outcome of that is. We apply those principles to every single investor to help them make the proper decisions. Now, I always tell them, you're the CEO. You're running the show. You make the decisions. You call board meetings when you feel you need to. But for the most part, you get to decide whether or not it makes sense to work with us and then get to decide how you go about your business based upon the information we, we provide from our experience and the information provided from your side, from your experience. That should help them to have a better result than they would on their own. Sound fair? Yeah. And you get to fire, not just hire. I mean, if people aren't working out for you, you know, Robert Kiyosaki talks about real estate investing being a team sport and it really is. It's not just you. You surround yourself with people who are better and smarter than you because you're going to be the general, you're going to conduct and you're going to let the team execute the vision, the the investment goals that you have. And I know that I have had to quote unquote fire people on my executive team, you know, my evolution of me being a real estate investor, people didn't work out. I've I've literally had a property manager steal thousands of dollars from me and I didn't know it at the time, but ultimately I found out and, you know, that was a, a quick and a, abrupt end to that relationship. So you can hire the right people and fire the people that don't work out. You know, they say you have to have the right people in the right seats on the bus and this is how you make sure of that. Exactly. And you're also doing it with people that have a history of putting seats on that bus as well. And one of the things I tell others when they decide, well, I'm going to go out and see what I can find on my own. Well, God bless you for it. Feel free. But what if things do go wrong? We just mentioned a property manager. Let's say the property manager goes wrong and Joe out there is trying to figure out what's happening with his property, calls the property manager. They're not responding. Well, when he calls up there, all it is is a guy named Joe calling up asking about that one property. Well, that property manager could have 600 doors underneath their management. So one person named Joe is not going to stand out. But if Joe says, you know, calls one of your members, say he's he's talking with Melissa and he's been working with Melissa. He calls up Melissa and say, hey, I'm having a problem with this property manager. Well, when Melissa from Narada calls, who is actually acting as his chief operations officer, then it gets some attention because it's not just Melissa calling for Joe. It's Melissa calling in behalf of every single investor that's ever worked with Narada. That's an army on the phone calling up and saying, hey, uh, we need to know about this one deal. You get a lot more attention when you have that type of strength behind you. And that's why I encourage a lot of people to work with your team and work closely because it's not just them by themselves. They have an entire army of people associated with you that's making that phone call on their behalf. Right. I refer to that as leverage. I mean, it's more or less the same thing, but we have leverage on a lot of service providers because we don't just send them one or two clients. There are you know, dozens and dozens of clients that they get from us through, uh, you know, a referral and us working with these investors. So when they hear us get on the phone and talk about a communication issue or a little problem or something that has to be resolved, they look at that very seriously because they realize exactly what you said. They're not dealing with one individual. They're talking to someone who represents a lot of past business and a lot of potential future business. So, you know, it all comes down to leverage. So let's talk about this map, if you will. So you are the CEO of your company. Your acquisitions team and the people who are helping you build that real estate portfolio is is what you refer to as your chief operating officer, your COO. And then you've got your lending team as your CFO, your chief financial officer. Does it go deeper than that? Like who else is on the right side of that table? 
you must have a CPA and some other people. Usually we'll work with the individual. Most of the investors have a CPA and that's where us on the financial side, when necessary, and if, it, and if it's something that does come up where we need to get involved with the CPA, we will communicate with them, set up those time to talks. Right now is not such an easy time to get that get them on the phone and then go through how we can strategi- strategically plan out things for them for their future as far as how their income is reported, how they go about setting up their systems and understand what their CPA is trying to do for them but then also let them know what they're trying to accomplish with their vision on their real estate investments and how those need to intersect. Because I have seen, you know, there are definitely many CPAs that are out there that are very good at their job, but maybe don't have a whole lot of history in working with real estate investors and understand what they're looking at. One of the things we run into a lot is how they reported on the taxes is maybe overly aggressive, or they may incorrectly place how many days it was actually a viable rental. Some of those things have an impact on their ability to qualify for the future. And we need to make sure that there's accurate data there. So we help them to understand the impact of overlooking one or two little things on a Schedule E that will impact them significantly for the future. So we have those conversations if we have the opportunity to. But for the most part, it's helping them to strategically plan out how they use their finances wisely and not put them at risk. Because when we think about this, at least as the mindset of most people, the consumer mindset is, it's, you know, I'm trying to get a loan and these banks are being a pain and there's too much paperwork and I get all that. But when you come to the point of a real estate as a business owner and you realize that when you're you're leveraging this property, you're literally being able to acquire a piece of real estate that's a cash flowing business for 20 cents on the dollar. Somebody else is going to pay off the existing 80% note for you. Eventually, they're going to give you the title to that cash flowing business for free and and you get to also write it off on your taxes. So as you, you see the growth here, it's not necessarily like a cash on cash return model anymore. This is literally a multiple times over type model where you've never really spent a dime when you get down to the really details of it. And that's a, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. Now, do you have a title for other team members like your property manager? What would you title those guys? The property manager, I would put them underneath the regional operations division. So you yourself as COO, and then also within your team, you've got people that work directly with you, such as, you know, Steve, Melissa, Michael, and Jennifer and, and Ron that are working directly with you on that operation that in the chief's office, if you will. Yeah. And then you've got your regional operations manager, which would be your your local market turnkey guy, you know, whoever, let's just say where, you know, whatever state you're working in, sure. you've got a specific people out there that are turning property. So there's your, there's your regional operations manager. They're going to have their maintenance team. They're going to have their management team. All of them are going to fall under the regional operations division. So you have multiple different layers to your division and then your regional, you can have multiple different regions. You don't have to stay in one region. A person can go to Tennessee, a person can go to Missouri, a person can go over to Indiana. So now you have three divisions that have three different regions. And you can break those regions up into various people within the region. So it really can be an org chart of however you want to lay it out. Now, on the finance side, I've got myself as the chief uh, financial officer, just from a perspective of helping you engineer it mentally. And then you've got my operations manager, Ellen, and then then on down to the processors themselves and the individuals that are aiding the processors and moving it through. And her whole job is to strategically plan out your, your leverage strategy to be sure that you have the money there to keep expanding the business as you see fit. So all of this is really not a way to 
make something that is fairly simple sound complicated. This is just a mindset or a perspective on how you should look at your business and how you should look down upon your business in order to see the pieces and understand that you are the one that's driving the ship, maintaining control, setting directive, and communicating with your frontline people in order to run the business as a business, not to treat it as a hobby. This is, to me, this is just, I hate to say it's a fancy way to look at something, but it's essentially just another perspective or a better way to look at how your business is structured. Would you say that's true or am I off the mark here? I think you're 100% accurate there because mindset is everything in our lives. If a person goes at it with the wrong idea, they look at things too lightly. They try and see, because I know that passive real estate investing is part of a catchphrase out there. And passive is really another mindset of saying, hey, here you can go about that and just make money by not doing anything. But in reality, a CEO doesn't have to really do anything but make good, solid decisions, but they still have to be really good at thinking and making a, a concerted effort to be sure they're making the right decision. I remember a very successful CEO one time saying that he tries to be the dumbest person in the room because if he has to come up with the answer to the question or he has to come up with the concept or the way to solve the problem, then he's got the wrong people with him. And so that's where I put it back on each investor and say, you as CEO have to take the time, put the energy and thought into deciding who is going to be at that board table with you. And once you've developed that level of trust and you have uh, developed the right team of people, like you said, get the right people on the ship, you can kind of sit back a little bit and make it a little bit more passive. But on occasion, you still have to make a decision and it needs to be a good decision. And so as late mingling them CEO, you put that onus on the individual to be sure that when they are considering the growth or even starting into this business, that they take the time to make very, very good decisions because ultimately it falls back on them. If they didn't listen to the, the advice properly or they didn't take the time to even ask for it or get, even take the time to get the right people on the ship, they just went with whoever was perceived as the cheapest, then the only one they had to blame is themselves. Right. You don't have to be the smartest, but you have to know enough to ask intelligent questions and then let people who are hopefully smarter than you help you make the right decision. So that's, yeah, that's, I, I love that concept. I, I never really thought of it that way. I always just envision myself as being the general and setting the direction and, and the marching orders and then, you know, bringing on the right people to help execute the plan. I guess this is just another way of looking at the same thing. So I like it. Correct. But just, uh, uh, yeah, it is, it is definitely, the, the, like you said, definitely the same way to look at it just from a slightly different perspective. And I think it puts the right onus on the right people when you park it in that manner. So when you say the evolution of the real estate investor, what are you trying to say? This is just an evolution in, in that perspective? Well, it is, it's the fact that people have decided to take that role on as CEO and take ownership of it. Because as a consumer, when you're a consumer spending money and going into debt, then you're laying blame on everybody for why it might not be working or not working the way you perceived it. People buy right now. I mean, let's think about the consumer. The consumer right now is responsible for 72% of the U.S. economy. Yep. I also heard an alarming statement at the turn of the year from an economist that the global economy is made up. Again, it was 19.6 or 19.7 percent of the global economy is the U.S. investor. That's a pretty alarming thing. Yeah. When you consider uh, how do consumers go about what they do, right? Let's just take flat screen TVs, for instance. I know for a fact that there's major manufacturers that sell through multiple different sources. And if they're going through a, like a Walmart, a, a discount direction, it has been stated openly that they have a different manufacturing process for that. 
It's not near as good a component. It looks like the exact same thing. It's shaped the same. It does the same thing. It has the same model number, but it has different components within it that are inferior versus going down the street to a, an actual audio or visual store that has the exact same model, but has better components. You would only have it. So they go where it's about 15% cheaper. Consumers go where it's cheaper, even though they have to replace it three times as often. That's the mindset of the consumer. Where do I go to get it cheaper? And so they're kind of cutting their own throat in some respect because of that. Well, when we're talking about that thought process, they're more willing to, when things don't go right, to blame somebody else. And that's why we had a lot of the crash that went on. People, they demanded more, more than they could really afford. Right. And it was given to them. And then when it fell apart, they blamed somebody else for saying, well, they, they didn't tell me right, or, or they're the ones who gave it to me and let me have it, so it's their fault. Nobody took onus on themselves to say, I shouldn't have done that. I should have been wiser with my, with my financial decisions. As evolving to a CEO or evolving to a business owner, they're thinking a little bit more about it. They're taking on the onus of the saying, hey, I need to make a conscious decision as to which property I should buy. And then as they're doing that and they're involving themselves in the right people, they're going to dig in more into the rest of their finances and understand how do I maintain this business? How do I keep this going? Because now I have an objective. I'm not just buying a piece of real estate because next month it's going to be worth $50,000 more like it was in the mid 2000s. We're going to buy a piece of real estate and hold on to it for the long term to cash flow and then try and develop something that we can walk away from our business, our, our normal day-to-day business that has something that will keep growing and keep sustaining us because they have a vision for it not just some splash in the pan potential. So that is where the evolution has come from, that they're looking more down the long term. They're more interested in the long term, not interested in what's going to satisfy their, their urge today. Does that make any more sense? Yeah, it's, it makes perfect sense. And I've heard you say mindset multiple times, and it plays in heavily at every level when you're a real estate investor and when you you know are working on your finances. So let's jump into that for a bit, because I know you study this a lot and, and I think about investor mindset and having a positive mental attitude. And I mean, this is just something that I think we've just adopted long ago because we are who we are and we just push forward. But to me, investor mindset really comes down to this. You know, it's knowing what you want and then it's setting those goals, thinking positively, acting the right way, having determination and grit, making a decision and last but not least, taking action. When you put all those things together, it's almost inevitable that you will achieve some level of success. So tell me, you know, what is this investor mindset to you? Let's just talk about this for a few minutes. Well, the mindset kind of changes from individual to the individual. I've seen that they've, they've slowly evolved into seeing the success that can come from one deal. Yeah. So they are buying one piece of real estate. And I, my personal thought is sometimes that we've, we've done too great of a job of getting the mindset uh, going because sometimes they'll just buy one, then they'll buy 10, right? So it's just, hey, this, this is awesome. So I'm just go dive into it all, uh, all in and try and see what I can make happen immediately. And it's because we are creatures of, I guess, never, never enough, if you will. Yeah. But um, so the mindset in my mind, at least how it works for me, is, is trying to focus on what we want. And for me personally, it's, it's becoming a slave to good habit. I think is where where it has is helped me to generate the right mindset towards things and looking at things from the right perspective. So let's just take like today, interest rates we've seen move to a negative position since the turn of the year. The Fed has unraveled their balance sheet quite a bit. So one of the things I'm trying to help the real estate investors take a look at where they were basically 
pulling out of investing into the mortgage-backed securities market and really into treasuries and all, all the other parts of the U.S. bond market. From I can't remember how many billions of dollars a week they were not putting into it. So therefore, shrinking the amount of money available. So what was happening is the interest rates jumped from you know high fours to high fives within a 30 to 40 day period. So a normal consumer is going to look at that. And I've had m- many investors call me and say, you know, we closed on a transaction the month before at a certain rate. And then a month and a half later, we're looking at interest rates potentially locking at a point higher. Well, when we're looking at a $100,000 transaction with 20% down, that's an $80,000 loan, they were seeing the cash flow on an annual basis decline by nearly $600 a year. So it's $594 a year of, of a drop in cash flow. Pretty alarming. So as, a, as one who's a consumer thinking, I'm losing $594 a year. That was the thinking. Well, I asked them, let's take a little bit deeper look into that. If your income dropped by 594 a year, that means your tax liability dropped, correct? Right. So then we want to look at the other side. What caused that drop? Well, that drop, of course, was the interest rate went up. Well, an $80,000 loan, 1% increase in interest equals $800 per year in interest paid. Well, who's paying the interest? It's the tenant. The tenant, right? So the tenant's paying the interest, but yet that investor got to write it off. So if they're dropping in revenue of 594, but increasing in write-off by 800, is it really a $594 loss? No, not when you do the math. No, it's not anymore. In fact, it's not exact wash. We know that because you're right. only you know, getting, getting percentage on taxes, but it's not 594. The difference is a consumer sees the monthly loss of cash going into their pocket. A investor or a business owner or a CEO sees that there's a dozens of different ways to make revenue. Revenue is coming in because you go and do your taxes. And because you did your taxes, you have now saved in what you have spent anyway. So either way, money is still going to be flowing in. It just flows in in a different manner. And it's a matter of getting your mindset right to understand where it comes from, what are the different ways you can get it to come to you, and that it's not all about what's the dollars that hit your bank account. That's right. Yeah, that's another way to look at it. So, you know, that's that's a matter of perspective. So having the right mindset is critically important. You know, you could look at something as a bad thing, but the way you've just explained it and taken a deeper dive in looking at what it really means at the end of the year, at the end of, you know, as they say, at the end of the day, it really isn't that big of a difference. And the thing is, is still, you're still having triage. The, the real rate of return in terms of what your interest rate is on the loan versus what the cap rate and performance of the property is, there's still enough of a difference there where the investment still makes a lot of sense financially and it'll only improve as the years go by. So it's really not that much of a setback. Exactly. And eventually you're getting the property for free anyway, because somebody else is paying it off, right? And you've made cash flow as a result of holding it for them and letting them use it, and you got to write off all the expenses on it. So when you really get down to it, even if you're breaking, just barely breaking even or slightly over, you're still winning. You're winning in a big way. It's just a matter of getting your mind right and seeing it right. Yeah, you could have also said that, you know, to think back in the 1980s, interest rates were as high as 19% plus. So not that that made a whole lot of sense in terms of investing in real estate, but they still were in the 19% range. So having a 5.5%, 6% mortgage loan today is far less than what it was for many decades. It's still a gift. It's still a huge gift. And I've seen the mindset go the opposite direction. I have one guy who spent a lot of time on bigger pockets. Uh, great information on there. I think it's an excellent resource for people. But for, for some reason, 
he had, from all the stuff he was reading, all the posts, believed that anything less than a 14% cash on cash return, you were losing money. And we had got to a point where we're getting ready to finish up his transaction, and he was looking to back out of it because he was getting 13.2%. He's like, well, I'm losing 1%. I'm like, how are you losing 1%? It was why I ran the numbers. It was 14.2 when we started. Now it's, you know, when I finally get the, the end result on my insurance, the end result on the taxes, and all that added up, I'm literally down to 13.1, and it's not worth it to me anymore. Well, I couldn't quite wrap my head around it. And again, it was a mindset and a perception. And I think that one of the failures there was he was too busy looking at what people were posting about their big wins instead of realizing that the average out there was much, much lower and still a big win for him to even get, you know, in nine or 10 percent. Yeah. His perception was off. And because of that, he walked away from a $65,000 acquisition that was, that was cash flowing $300 plus a month because in his mind, he was going to be the only guy getting less than 14 percent. I said, you know, when you think about going online and what people are posting, that's a lot like going to the uh, tabloids at the at the grocery store. A lot of these fashion magazines are not going to have a picture on the cover of somebody right when they get out of bed. This can be right after that $10,000 makeup <laughs> job. That's exactly what they're posting online. Nobody wants to post about a normal day. They want to post about how they just kicked ass. Yeah. They want to talk about the home runs, not the singles and doubles, but really 90% of all the deals done out there are singles and doubles, maybe the occasional triple to use baseball analogy. The thing is, is anytime I can get a 13% cash on cash return on my money, not including tax benefits, not including equity growth and appreciation, that's a huge win. I mean, it's pretty hard to find a 13% cash on cash return today in any of the good neighborhoods, you know, markets like, well, forget the markets, just neighborhoods like A and B's. You'd have to get into C's and D's to achieve double-digit returns like that. So that sounds like a really good deal, just given the numbers you've mentioned. Oh, yeah. It was a ridiculous deal. And to my understanding, that was a couple of years ago. He has yet to ever invest because he can't find that deal. So getting your mind right and focusing, like you just used the baseball analogy. Let's kind of talk about my business for just a quick second. I had alluded to the fact that I closed 676 units last year. Now, my average loan size, because I'm working with real estate investors nationally, is pretty low. When you compare me to the rest of the, the top 1% of my field nationally, there's guys closing a lot of big numbers out there in total volume because their average loan size like, is like a half a million bucks. My average loan size is like 95000 So when you're talking about grand slams, these guys are hitting them out of the park every single deal. Me, I'm ranked in the top 1% because I'm bunting like a bitch, right? I'm walking up, I'm bunting every deal, but I'm still getting on base every single time. So for a person to think that they have to hit a home run every time, I think is is wrong. And a real estate investor who thinks the same thing is setting themselves up for never getting on plate. You really need to get up there and just be willing to even take those little bunts on occasion and get yourself on plate. Yeah, no, it's true. And you made me think of another analogy, and that's playing, playing poker. I love playing poker. I play in the World Series of Poker every year. And, you know, a lot of people seem to think that winning poker is what you see on TV and it's, it's these big, consistent wins. Well, the reality is you don't really need to win that often. And when you win, you just need to have a small win here and a small win there. You just preserve your capital. In the case of poker, you preserve your chips. You build your chip stack. You do it singles and doubles at a time. And it doesn't have to be that frequently. And if you do that, you'll make it deep in a tournament or you'll just walk away a winner in the cash game. And, you know, the same thing is here. Unless you come across a smoking deal because of a distressed seller or some unique situation, you're really just going to be investing in singles and doubles. You're not going to find that deal of a lifetime all that often. In fact, you know, I like to say that the deal of a lifetime comes by once every week. Because if you're out there looking, 
if you have the right team, you have the right people that you're working with, they're going to continually bring you good deals. And it's just a matter of stacking those deals continuously that one day you're going to look back, could be three years, five years, seven years down the road. You look back and you realize, geez, I've accumulated you know, 10 properties and I'm cash flowing $4,000 a month and, you know, I'm doing quite well now. But that's the mindset I think you have to have is you have to realize that if you set the bar too high for yourself, like the guy did with that 14% cash on cash return, you're setting yourself up for failure before you even get started. And you may never end up investing. You might end up talking yourself out of investing before you even get started. And that's, I mean, I can't even imagine myself in that situation. So I feel bad for that guy. You and me both. And to your point on those who are looking for the the big pot wins, right? Instead of just going for the singles and doubles or the small wins and preserving your chips, there are people that are making fortunes off of those trying to make the big grand slam. Every time you're trying to jump in and think you're going to make that big deal, sometimes like you, like the old adage, it's, it's too good to be true. Somebody yeah. else just made a fortune off of you because mm-hmm. you're not willing to put in the work for the small steps. It's when you're trying to take the big leaps that you end up getting the rug taken out from underneath you. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Do you want to say anything about interest rates? We've been talking about rates here for a while. Any forecast on that? Where are we today? Any issues? Well, we're seeing the market has found what appears to be a little bit of a floor. So when I talk with the investors, we'll we'll review the mortgage-backed securities and how they trade. I spend about $1,600 a year to have access to the actual minute-by-minute charts as they're trading to see where they're going. And I listen to different analysts that talk about what's going on in the economy. And there is talk, and it could be preemptive talk about, you know, they're, they're more of a bubble forming in the the stock market just we talked about the S&P just a minute ago and it's and where companies are being valued at well we're watching where those trades are that money's moving within the mortgage backed securities market and people are starting to get looks like a little bit more footing and a desire to invest back into those markets since the the Fed took that massive leap and pulled so much money out and divested so much from it well, there is there is belief that we might see a little bit more of a return of investment into those pools and improving the rates going forward. It's not going to be a ton. We may never see the low to mid fours again for real estate investors. We may even creep into the fours again uh, when it comes to 20% down or 15% down. But we could be close to that on the 25% down. So it's a matter of us spending time, CEO and CFO, talking through the strategy and is it really that big a deal that we hit those markets that those marks again with real, with the uh, rates? I don't know that it is. If you're able to cash flow at all, secure a piece of real estate, and have somebody else pay it off on your behalf, it's a win. It's a massive win. Take advantage of that now. Take advantage of it while you have the capability because we don't know what the market's going to do down the road. That's right. Have you heard any more about the chatter that I kept hearing last year about Fannie and Freddie raising the ten cap limit on how many conventional loans an investor could? put on their credit? You know, there was a lot of chatter about that last year. And I found that really interesting that all of a sudden, rather than raising the cap of 10, they released what was called their collateral underwriter. So a lot of us are familiar with desktop underwriter, which was an electronic system that allows them to underwrite a person's income, assets, credit, and determine their ability to get a loan. Well, they created another one called collateral underwriter that underwrites the appraisal. So if if we remember back to the late 2000s, they had changed the format of the appraisal. And it was so those appraisals could go into a system and they could store the data on it. Well, after about, I, I think it's about six or seven years of storing data. I could be wrong on that. I go back and look at my notes. They had uh, released a system that was going to analyze that. 
Well, their real big push right now is really being sure the values are there because there's still a lot of people pulling crap out there. There's still a lot of people out there doing fraudulent things when it comes to properties and their values. Right. And people are being taken advantage of. And Fannie does not want to be indemnifying loans for investors putting up the monies for us to lend out on something that's really not worth what it is. So they're doing their best to create some system to really hold the appraiser, the appraisal portion accountable for accuracy. And so now that they're working on that and trying to fine tune it, and it's not fine tuned at all, it's very, very difficult. We're fighting through it a lot. And you and I have actually experienced a lot of that recently in certain markets. But I think that they're going to refine that more. Once they get a lot more of a stable position with that, they may revisit that. I can't speak for them on that. I, I haven't had any conversation about that that direct with anybody over at Fannie or Freddie. I know that they're just trying to be to make sure that they're doing good, solid business. And I, for one, want them to stay solvent. I want them to to stay safe. I want them to have good, solid basis for doing their doing their transactions. Because the longer they're in business, the longer you and I can keep doing our business. So I pray that they're going to figure out how to get that really fine tuned and be able to determine the true risk of a, of a turnkey property. Because I think that's part of where their system is having a hard time figuring it out. Because you have a property that was purchased, let's say, in January for 20000 but is now selling in April for 70000 And the system can't understand that $30,000 worth of rehab was done to it. They gutted that thing down to the studs, redid everything. It's practically a new home. So the system's not not able to read that and considers it could be risky. So we're trying to fight through that. But once that is established, well, I think it might be back on the uh, – my personal feeling is it uh, – or um, or guess is it might be back on the books to consider because they feel might feel a little bit more safe in these properties and that they're not not increasing their risk of having more properties with with one person that could have a handful of those in there with with poor valuation that could cripple the real estate investor cuz they end up with properties that are really not worth what they paid for it. Well, I think they're just trying to avoid fraudulent transactions like you, what used to happen many many years ago because it boggles my mind that they can't figure out the fact that you take an ugly property that you buy at a distressed price, you add value by putting money into it and fixing it up and then turning it around, you know, at, at fair market value. That, that's just called a value added transaction. It's been going on for decades. And the fact that they, I mean, I, I have a hard time believing that they can't figure that part of it out. I really think that they're just trying to avoid fraudulent transactions. And I think they're like a rubber band. They've kind of gone a little too far. They've kind of had a knee jerk reaction too far to the other side and then. And then ultimately what will happen is they'll pull back and they'll realize, okay, most of these transactions, as in the vast majority of them, are actually legitimate transactions. And hopefully they'll just make things easier for us to get loans. True. I mean, but but we also have to remember that it's going to take a human touch to be able to look at that and say that. Yeah, sure. Or if you got, if you got a, if you're trying to lean on an electronic system to simplify it and make it scalable, an electronic system is only going to recognize difference. It's going to probably, it's going to take right. some really good artificial intelligence to be able to look at that and understand that, and maybe they're still trying to formulate it. I can't speak to that. I know that we have put things in place with people in our organization that look at those appraisals that score negatively and say, this makes sense. Yeah. We look at the comps and we look at what's going on. This makes sense. And we've also seen some that it comes back scoring it and they're looking at it. It's like, um, we've done the research and even the scoring model is wrong because these things are not spitting out right. And the thing that's interesting about that is we, as the organization writing the loan, we have to take onus if something's wrong. They'll make us buy it back. And it gets very expensive when you have to buy that loan back. 
and sometimes have to transfer it to a different source. And with the interest rates being volatile, sure. it can get really, really expensive. So we're all trying to just be very, very careful how we go about it. I don't disagree with you at all in them trying to avoid fraud. And it's amazing how much is still going on out there. And you and I have had conversations before about people pulling the wool over somebody and taking advantage of them. And the best thing you and I can ever do is just keep a, a big wall between them and work with good, solid people in each market. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, there's no replacement for some common sense. So, you know, ultimately, I think the underwriter is the person who's going to make the decision, not the computer. Exactly. And and they do. And it helps in that respect to have good people on our side to paint the right picture for the underwriter. Because sure. you have a person that doesn't have a lot of familiarity. I know when you've got all these banks in the world and all these mortgage companies, it's been proven you give, you a, give a monkey a phone and some training, it can close loans. But it has to be real <laughs> simple stuff. The real estate investors, these guys, I mean, all you guys are your own special snowflake. And we have to be able to take that square peg and fit it into that oval hole because it's not even round anymore. And then try and paint that picture. Yeah. And once and if we have enough experience, and we do between me and all my staff, we have over 200 years experience of working strictly with real estate investors. We're able to help them get through that to make sense of it. Perfect. Well, let's quickly wrap up here with a few words about gratitude. You wanted to touch upon this. What do you have to say about gratitude? Well, I've determined that that's probably the most important thing that we can ever try and instill in our daily lives. It is, in my opinion, one of the most uh, powerful forces on the planet, and we've all you know, are familiar with The Secret. It's a great, great, uh, great book. There was a movie put out about it. Sure. It talks about the attitude of gratitude. It talks about the law of attraction. But one of the things I've noticed, everything that's been put out there has yet to actually tell me what the practical application was. All I could ever get from anybody in explanation is it changes how you feel. And I don't disagree with that. If you do truly come into something with a sense of gratitude, it does change how you feel. It changes how you approach things and it helps you go about your day in a better attitude. I don't disagree with that. But I did find myself in a situation where I was able to contrast gratitude and ingratitude to really understand the practical application. And let me kind of tell you a quick story here. I had an employee at one point that when uh, we hired her on, we hired her on a specific way and bonus. And the stipulation was is after 90 days to six months, depending, I can't remember exactly which one it was, um, we reevaluate her performance and then reevaluate her income. That time had come. And I had a number in my mind that I was going to increase her wages by. And when I started looking it up, the average wage increase out there for a first wage increase was 2 to 3%. I called a friend of mine at, at a large uh, company who was an executive there, and they told me the same, 2 to 3% the average. I contacted my direct supervisor because I'm on the firm. I said, well, here's what I'm thinking. They said, that's 10%. 10% is unheard of. We'll do maybe three. Well, I pushed back because 3% was nothing. So I said, well, I really want to push for this. They said, well, then you're going to have to give us something to go off of. We need you to dig in show us what she contributed and why she would warrant that. So at that point, what I did was I dug through all kinds of emails. I dug through all kinds of she had instituted and showed where she had made a major contribution to our business. And when I went back to my corporate guys with all this information, took me about two weeks, they approved it. I was extremely ecstatic that they were willing to approve this and I could give this to her because she deserved it. When the time come, she sat down in my office. We talked over everything that I showed them, all the things that she contributed, how she had benefited the business. And then I went to show her my gratitude with the package that we had designed for her, which was a 10% bump in her wages and a 30% bump in her bonus with certain metrics. Now, put yourself in my position here. Put yourself in the position of being able to do this for somebody and how it's kind of like your child when you're getting ready to give them that bicycle they've been dreaming about at Christmas time. You can't wait to see them open it up, right? Right. Well, I slid this over to her. 
she looks at it and then looks up at me with this kind of look of disdain saying, that's it? It's like you couldn't <laughs> do better than that? Now, what would your what's your gut reaction? I'm not talking about you as a business owner and a coach. What is your gut reaction? What would you do to somebody that treats you with such ingratitude? I would have swung from positive expectation to complete disappointment. It would have taken me back in surprise. And I was definitely taken back in surprise. And then almost instantaneous from surprise to anger. And my natural inclination was not only do you not get the raise, I'm like, hell with that. Like, go clean out your desk. I want to tell her you're fired. Get out, you ungrateful little fill in the blank. And then there's also another thing. It's like, why don't you drop your car keys because you don't deserve that either. I mean, I was that angry. But I let my mind take over and not my gut. And we start coaching through the process. So, you know, it's much easier. You know, when you're in this type of situation, you may want to look at, you know, a little bit of thank you. And then, you know, what would it take to go to this point? You know, start asking right. questions. But, you know, I started trying to coach her through this, but it didn't change the fact I was just angry about this. Then later on that week, I'm exiting the freeway. And as I'm exiting to come to my office, there's a homeless man standing on the off ramp. And you know the scene. He's standing there with his uh, with his cardboard sign. Sure. And there's something about this guy. Well, I reached to a spot in my truck because I've been hiding money in there for years because there was a point in my life I was so broke I had to scrounge for change just to get enough gas to get home. And so now I hide cash. And I rolled down my window. I reached where this one bill was at. And I held it out. He walked up. He accepted. He said, thank you. And he turned to walk away and he unfolded it. When he stopped and looked back at me, he held it up. He goes, are you serious, man? I'm like, yeah, why? He goes, this is 20 bucks, man. He's like, yeah, cheers. He walks back to me, had my arm up on the window of the truck. He reaches for my hand, pulls it towards him, bows his head, and says an audible prayer of thanks to God and a blessing on me. Hmm. And then with tears streaming down his cheeks, he looks up at me and thanks me profusely for changing his life. At that point, I was hit with an overwhelming sense of guilt because I only had 20 bucks cash. Wow. I was thinking, dude, you have a square because I'll swipe my card. (laughs) I would have willingly given him any cash I had on me because of the feeling that I had. Yeah, wow. And as the light turns green, the people before behind me are honking and I start to leave. And then it hit me like you wouldn't believe. That's the practical application of gratitude. One person three days before I was giving $10,000 a year increase in income to and she damn near spat in my face. Yeah. And I was angry enough. I wanted to take everything from her, not just the raise. I want to take the job. I want to take everything. So you don't get a damn thing from me ever. And on the other side, a man was so grateful to me for $20 that I was willing to giving him anything I had. Unbelievable. That's what works. So think about how that would go within our world if everybody acted in that same manner. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it makes me think of Doris Day. You know, she has this great quote, gratitude is riches, complaints is poverty. And if you think in terms of gratitude and you appreciate what you have and you work towards something more and you help people along the way, you can't help but to become successful and or rich, you know. So gratitude is so important. You know, we all have, my whole family has a gratitude journal and we try and write in it every night. We don't every night, but we try. There's always good little little tweaks that somebody can do to try and get that feeling to come about. I actually was in a meeting where a presenter had spoke about gratitude and he had said, you never get out of your bed until you have three new things to be grateful for. Well, after about three weeks, I started running out of new stuff, right? I mean, it's like, okay, I'm never going to get out of bed. So I'm going to just get out of bed. Yeah. Well, because of that, that homeless man, I started instituting something different. I started realizing, wait a minute, I do have new things every day. You know, I've got Melissa, I've got Steve, I've got Michael, I've got yourself, I've got Jennifer, I've got Amy, I got everybody sending me referrals every day. So I started writing down those names, the name of the person being referred and the name of the person referring them. And now I take those and do exactly as I was taught by that homeless man to present myself to God with those names in my hand as grateful for them 
and asking a blessing upon them as well. And it's changed my business. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. The person you're referring to that wakes up every morning with the three things to be grateful for is Dean Graziosi. And, Correct. And I actually did a an episode with him, episode number 87, which is well worth listening to for anybody listening to this episode. We were talking about millionaire success habits and you know it, we titled it The Gateway to Wealth and Prosperity. And he's really a big believer in gratitude and having a gratitude journal and you know being thankful for everything and just living your daily life that way, just in, in an attitude of gratitude. So- it's well worth listening to. But yeah, great feedback. Agreed. Yeah. And I think anybody in any industry can apply somewhere. In fact, I tell that story to Uber drivers when I've got a long drive. And I tell them, listen, you can apply that. You've got names that come up on your phone every day. You can apply that same thing. And if you're asking a blessing upon those people in their travels and, and uh, having a prayer of gratitude to God for that person being in the seat of your vehicle so you can bread your table, it's only going to make your business better. Sure. And I've noticed that every single person, if we're able to institute something like that into our world and what Dean talks about in your gratitude journal, there's no reason you're going to ever have a bad day. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You set yourself up for success right from the get-go. Exactly. It's the right way to live. Well, Having said that, Aaron, I am also grateful, grateful for having you on the show, you know, a wealth of information, great stories, good information. So thank you for coming on. Please tell our listeners how they can find you. The best way to get me is AaronBChapman.com. Aaron B as in boy, Chapman.com. Boy is not my middle name, by the way. It's going to have all my information out there, my NMLS ID, all the things you need to know about me. And then you can also just directly contact me via email. It's There's operation. There should be a system in there to be able to accomplish that too. But and then to circle back around, thank you. Marco, for always being willing to work with us, for the trust that you put in, in me and my team here, and the friendship. I mean, yeah. it, to me, more than anything, just having friends that are in the business that understand what I understand and to interact with each other. I don't have clients. I have just a hell of a lot of friends across the country well, or across the globe, really. Well, it's, it's great being part of your network. So thank you very much. Thank you, brother. All right, Aaron. Thanks for being on, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you. I appreciate you, man. Thank you. Are you looking for a roadmap to financial freedom? If so, we have a solution for you. Narada Real Estate is offering a limited number of free strategy sessions to help you get out of the rat race. Learn how you can create wealth and build monthly passive income. To set up a time with one of our knowledgeable investment counselors, simply go to naradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights in media interviews, please contact the host.